Bold City Longsword presents the Swords and Stereo Podcast. Uh, welcome to Swords and Stereo. I'm Matthew Stinson. I am back again with Dr. Bill. Bill, please introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Bill Ernohazi. Some of you have already heard me on a prior podcast. I teach the effect kunst of the 14th and 15th century here at Bold City Longsword. So today we were going to talk about just Messer in general. And I, I know when I started HEMA in uh, late 2015, that was the new hot item. Everyone was, that was the one, every, the weapon everyone was talking about. I think uh, uh, Fogger, Jeffrey Fogarty's LeCuckner book had just came out, and uh, all the sword shops and online stores were uh, scrambling to get Messers out for the public to buy. I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about like the difference between a Messer, a Falchion, a Dusak. Uh, I, I, I've heard some people even compare. It's a big Bowie knife. So if you could just go into that for us and, and kind of give the people new to HEMA the basics. Sure. So the question is, what even am a messer? Many times you'll hear people looking at a messer for the first time, trying to find a way to describe it and fit into categories they're used to, will lay on and say something like, oh, that's a European katana. Now... This is a kind of ironic thing to say because the Messer has exactly the opposite origins of the Katana. It starts off as a very, very humble tool, a tool of farmers and peasants. So, in the evolution of knives and edged weapons in continental Europe, by the end of the 13th century, rolling into the 14th century, although there were a variety of daggers that were either basically ice picks or long, thin, double-edged weapons, there was a concurrent evolution of a knife that was being used originally for chores and around the barnyard and around the house, but then you weren't very rich if you lived in that strata of society, so you really kind of wanted that knife to do it all. The same impulse that leads to the notion in contemporary terms of an everyday carry knife, an EDC knife. So this evolves into a fairly long, broad-bladed weapon, typically with only a single edge on one side. In the Germanies of the 14th century, this often ends up with a clip point as well. So you get a little bit of raking and cutting and a little more penetration capacity if you have to stick it into something rather than just slice with it. This tool starts to be known, contemporary sources, as a Baunware, a peasant's knife or a peasant's weapon or peasant's tool, you can parse that slightly differently depending upon the context of the manuscript you find it. 
So these looked indeed very much like big Bowie knives in a way, but there are a couple of differences. The Bauernwehr typically did not have a cross hilt. However, fairly early on, it does develop this little protrusion that comes off the uh, hilt to one side. It is what is now known as the nagel or the nail. You would originally hear it called the nebel in the 13th and 14th centuries. And this little stud or piece of metal that comes up and off provides some basic protection for the hand holding the knife. You don't slide up onto the knife because you bump into that little side protrusion and something falling down that side would be caught by the naga and shocked off. These started in turn to evolve in a fairly common pattern into fairly large implements. They ultimately can be still considered a balanver at 80 centimeters, so say 31 inches long in Dodo. Now you're talking a respectable short sword. Um, thicker, with a much less flexible blade than machete, but again, having some of the same um, uses as a machete. Good for brush, good for undergrowth, good for defending yourself if you had to. An EDC tool. You will occasionally hear uh, an alternate term, a house there. That would be something you use to defend a house. A house fighting tool, a household knife. These can be a little more confusing, at least in the extant literature that we have. Sometimes it will be used even to describe something that we might now call a rudimentary messer goes to and fro. By and large, though, if you do a medium deep dive into the literature of the period, you're not going to hear Hausner very often. You will hear Baumwehr a fair amount. So, at some point in the 14th century, and it's not well documented because, honestly, no one cared. They were playing with the tool. See, what makes this a more useful tool? What makes it a better tool? At some point, the Bauernwehr starts to pick up a rudimentary cross hilt. A simple cross, not necessarily a very long one, but enough to actually cover the entire hand, as well as the noggle protruding up to the side. These weapons, in order to be relatively simple but very robust, would have the grip riveted on to the tang. So you start to see a weapon coming in at about 30 to 32 inches long in toto with a cross guard and a naga, typically a flat slab-like handle riveted in place, and this is what most people think they of when they see a messer at this point. This is what the majority of synthetic trainers and steel trainers represent. 
okay? These are also, to distinguish them from just knife, messer, which is the most general term, yes? These will be distinguished by many people, even in the 14th century, as a langus messer or a grossa messer, a long knife or a big knife. Thank you, Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> but those usages are designed specifically to, to distinguish this short sword-like single-hand weapon from the carrying knife that you might still also have on your belt just for everyday tasks. The messer is more distinctively a weapon. It kind of moves out of that EDC tool device and kind of can be a weapon to a dead bang on weapon. You start to see it used not just in the context of farming. You start to see townsmen carrying these. You start to see them used by town levies. There's some question whether or not, well, you've all perhaps heard the notion that Messers became popular because commoners couldn't carry two-edged weapons. It turns out it's a lot harder to find law anywhere in the Germanies that actually said that. There was no doubt some sumptuary law somewhere that said something like that, but it turns out to be a lot harder to prove as a commonplace. It is at least as likely that the Messer was an easier weapon to make. You could make it from a simpler forging. You only had to have one edge on it, not two. So fussing with geometry, fussing with, does this need to be oval? Does this need to be a diamond shape? You only have to grind half of it to a very sharp edge. The slab tang with the rivet construction is a lot simpler than some of the more finicky ones. You don't worry about winding it in cord and things like that. So it is at least as likely that as a commoner's weapon, as a armsman's weapon, as a tradesman's weapon, it was just cheaper to produce and simpler to get a hold of. Soon, though, you see an evolution of the longest messer, and it becomes really a long, long knife. Now you start to talk about a blade which might be 36 inches all by itself and another 8 to 9 inches of handle. These are definitely um, not civil implements. They are not stuff you just carry around the town, not even in a bad D&D game if you're a murder hobo, right? Mm -hmm. These are weapons used by fighting men for various and sundry things on the battlefield. So these generally tend to get called Kriegsmessers, messers of war, war knives. What becomes interesting about all of this is that at some point, obviously, these weapons come to the attention of the gentry and the nobility. And the reason we know this is that all these manuals of defense start to talk about them. In fact, the earliest fact book in the German tradition that we have access to, the so-called Nürnberger House Book, that some of you 
might know is uh, HS3227A. There's a section on the messer. So it is organically a part of the German tradition of the Kunstgesetz, the KDF, if you like. It is integrally a part of the tradition from the earliest times. Now, you might at this point wonder, okay, so this was a resolutely common folk tool. How did it get folded into fencing masters? Why were they paying attention? And why was it taught as a weapon you want to learn, not just something you want to be prepared to fight against? Was it because the military aspect of its use gave it a cachet? Much like Elizabethan gentlemen in the late 1500s wore military gorgets as basically very fancy necklaces over their court guard. Was it fashionable because it was a military fashion? Or could fencing masters who were, by the very nature of their art, teaching people to fight for real back then, did they appreciate the murderous effectiveness of these weapons? There's no question, the Messer is a short, fast, brutally effective tool. Uh, Halhofer opens his section on the Messer with a sentiment which is often translated, now here we fight with Messers, God save us. There's a reason for that. Or is the answer and? We don't know, because this is not a period in which people spend a lot of time writing down their interior sentiments and diaries. What is clear is from the earliest KDF fact book, we see Messers. They are intimately, integrally part of the fighting tradition of the German medieval Lichtenauer school. Uh, when you were going over the uh, the making of the blade and everything, you didn't talk about the blade being straight or curved. And I know there's there's a lot of options out there when someone new to training messer goes to buy a training tool. What what consideration do they need to take into like uh, how wide is the blade? How how curved is the blade? Uh, I know there's options where they're perfectly straight. Uh, where they're, they're broader at the base and they, they, they triangle out or they pretty much stay the same width all the way up to the very end? So, the original Messer blade, you can find many examples which are either gently curved, so you get a belly of a blade, again, much like an elongated boy, but there are many of them which are point-blank straight. So, to a certain extent, that becomes a matter of aesthetic appeal. What do you like? There's really not much to be said about one being more authentic than the other in terms of curvature. If you like a curved training tool, it should be a relatively gentle curve. The Messer is curved like a knife, not like a fantasy scimitar or something like that with this great exaggerated curve. Typically, the blade should not have a big back edge up near what would be the clip point. 
that kind of swelling of the blade towards the front end is actually a later thing. This is when you will start to see in Dussacs. This is what you will start to see in Central and Eastern European sabers. Strictly speaking, whether curved or straight, the Messer doesn't have a big extra load at the front six inches at the point. Now, having said that, some trainer makers put that in there in order to emphasize that this represents a clip point. Which, okay, I mean, that's not going to affect the handling of the average Messer trainer or Messer um, bouting tool. So it's not something you necessarily have to lose a lot of sleep over. So uh, I think right now in the HEMA community, the three main sources people use when they're training Messer is uh, they use the, the falchion section out of the Wallerstein manuscript or the Codex Wallerstein. Uh, they train Myers Dusak and back convert or they uh, train the Hans Lekuckner, which is right now, I think, the main Messer book on the market. But when people started asking you for private lessons, uh, you went to the Glasgow Manuscript. And I was wondering why that sticks out to you as your preferred tool to train people. Okay, so the Glasgow Fect book is compiled circa 1508. It is clearly a compilation by somebody who is compiling German sources. In fact, uh, among the notable things about the Glasgow manuscript, it continues not only to quote the Nuremberg Effect book. So again, the first one we have any, any record of in the Lichtenauer tradition, it goes back and cites extensively. It also cites Ringek's gloss on Lichtenauer's recital of the Merkvers and is the only other source to use the original illustrations redrawn and placed in the fact book. So there is definitely this sense that the anonymous compiler of the Glasgow manuscript wants a fact book that is reflective of the Fechtkunst as he understands it at the time. He also cites uh, several other, he has a section ought, uh, on wrestling, he has some dagger work in there. The Messer stands out, however, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it is totally anonymous, the material in it does not reflect any other effect book we have. So whether this is a lost effect book section from some other manuscript, or this is the person compiling the effect book has a very definite set of opinions about the Messer and goes ahead and writes it himself, that would be less likely given the scholastic conventions of the age. All we can say for certain is that the Messer section stands out 
for its brevity, first of all, for a very interesting structure in which 11 techniques, I mean, that's all this, this section of the Fecto does, 11 techniques on the missing, of which only six are you know, the foundational primary ones. The other five thereafter are basically specialized applications. What if he comes at you in a manner of the first technique, but he's using a big hammer instead of a sword? Literally. And in these 11 techniques, although he does not sit down and obsess over theory or underlying thematic structure, or any of the things we would be interested in as 21st century Westerners, there's clearly discernibly a very sound logic to the organization of these 11 techniques and the way they provide a very tidy premise for, lack of a better word, combative messer. Which sounds funny because, you know, everybody's take on the messer and the reputation in period of the messer is that it's a deadly, deadly weapon. The interesting thing about that, though, is that if you look at Lecochner and you look at Meyer, the plays tend to a more ornate shape. They are plays. This is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, and you're going to do this. Anybody who's actually bouted with a messer has had the disconcerting experience of having that structure come apart on them. It is not clear, I think, to people who see their all sharp things on the wall that when you have a shorter weapon, like a messer, whose blade might actually even conceivably be 24, 26 inches, not 30, that the distance between your ability to cut that guy and the other guy's ability to cut you is a lot shorter than with a longsword. And what that means is that you don't get as many decision points in the average exchange. Because you're closer, if you throw that shot, you are signally more likely to miss entirely or to hit dead on. If you hit dead on, not much to be said. You're cutting things off. If you miss or you are thwarted in your action, you're not going to get a lot of time with Fulin to decide what to do next. Because the other guy is coming right out at you, having interrupted your technique, and he's close enough to hit. There are typically messer fighting you do not see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, like you might see with a good rapier fight, yes? Mm-hmm. You, you just don't see that. Somebody throws, somebody misses, they get hit. Or maybe there's a throw and a throw, both people miss, and then they get the heck back out of dodge because they realize they're camping in very dangerous space. So, 
Lecochner and Meyer are offering val martially valid techniques in the toolbox, right? I mean, they are, strictly speaking, martially valid. But they may not make sense given the shorter, tighter decision arc you have when you're fighting with weapons 6, 8, 12 inches closer than the fight of an average longsword. To put it in longsword terms, it is much more likely that if I throw at just the beginning of the Zufekta at extreme range, I might still hit. I might still stop the fight. But if I miss, I've got a tempo in which to see something coming. If I throw at the edge of my range with a messer and I miss, I'm already at the Krieg, at the war. There's, there's virtually no time or space for there to be a middle to stand in. Things collapse faster. So what you see in the Glasgow Messer are techniques that are optimized for that kind of environment. In fact, and it's very striking if you've spent some time with the rest of the FET books, the Glasgow FET books 11 techniques don't talk a lot about hitting on the first strike. There is no assumption that you've got a Meister Howl, that you throw the Meister Howl in the vor, and if it hits, it's done. Every single technique assumes that opposition has happened. You're not going to get, you're not being the guy throwing the shot and hitting. Somebody throws the shot at you, and now how do you stop it first? The structure is definitely parry control, hit back. Some of you who are listening to this from a more Italianate mindset or who've been contemporary fencers are wondering why that's a big deal. For the German community, with an emphasis on controlling the fight, controlling the actions of the fight, throwing a strong first blow in order to take control of everybody's responses one that can't be ignored because you ignore it, you're dead. This emphasis on stop it, control it, and then hit it is unusual. 70, 80 years later, Meyer has perfected this. Provoke, take, hit. But you see this, although not with the same language, very early on in this manual, in the Glasgow Messer Treatise. Take the shot, control the weapon, control the man, then hit. So these become very, very, very apt techniques to teach people we're thinking in terms of combative messer. Now, in the 21st century, of course, thank goodness, that means I'm going to go fight messer at Surfo, or I'm going to go fight, well, you can't fight at Long Point anymore. Long Point is no longer a thing. But you're going to go fight at a HEMA tournament 
and you're going to fight Messer. I think the Glasgow Treatise gives you a much sounder foundational set than a lot of the plays of Lecochner and the later Meyer plays, which are very much more ornate in comparison and assume a decision tree of three, four, five, six things happening down the pipe. If you're fighting to essentially combative rules, you're going to find you don't get there very often. So the, the, the Glasgow Manuscript, the, the PDF, uh, the part that's just the techniques, that's only four pages. And uh, so that four pages is a, a list of, it's a collection of one or two beat techniques why do you think they didn't add like uh this this fundamental instruction into the book uh all the stuff you just described uh that you've taken away from studying it why do you think they didn't put it in there in broadest scope i guess the simplest way to answer that question is because in the german tradition nobody does Nobody, starting with Lichtenauer and then going on and out, spends an extensive amount of time talking about the substructure of the art. They don't spend a lot of time talking about principles and unpacking principles. The assumption is if you do this in this way, you will succeed. And over time, you will come to understand what's going on. Now, I have to put a little pin in that. I'm not entirely convinced that the person... How do I phrase this? Reading the Messer Treatise and comparing it just to what you see from the Ott, from the Ligetzner Dagger, from the Ringek that's in there, and then reading the anonymous Messer Treatise, I would not be surprised ultimately to find out if scholarship can do so, that that treatise is actually one or two authors distant from the most original work. For example, near the end, in fact, in the 11th technique, um, the author says something very interesting, a technique from the scabbard, and this is a distressed position such that you cannot go behind or before. Now, right away, Students of the Fechtkunst are listening to that and they're saying that literally doesn't make sense. To review for those of you who have German and to unpack for those of you who don't, German fight thinking does not proceed in terms of initiative in the same way an Italian thinks of a fight. After Lichtenauer, Germans think about fighting in the Vor, in the Nach, or in Indes. To Vor is literally before. 
Nach is after. If you're fighting in the vor, you have started the action. You have forced your opponent to be in a reactive condition. They're not doing anything but reacting to what you're doing. And as long as you can keep them in a reactive mode, sooner or later they're going to fail and you're going to hit. To be in the Nach is reactive. That's not a great place to be. But if you recognize that's what's happened to you, you'd seek an action in the Nach that makes you the owner of the fight again, where you start controlling what's going on. Indus is in between, or middle, or instant. The simplest way to describe that is what happens when I swing at your head, you swing at mine, and we stop each other with our blades in the middle and we're in a bind. This is index. We are between. Both of us are hanging out here. Neither of us owns the fight at this point. Neither of us is controlling anything. We're stuck. So the first person to move out of Indus typically is going to succeed. The Germans were big fans of the proposition that an okay action taken in the right time was better than the perfect action taken too late. So how can you, if you're thinking about fight in the German schema, how can you be neither before nor behind? Neither vor nor nach, but it's not indus either because the other guy is already swinging at you. Now, a contemporary 21st century writer describing this would say, I suspect, something like, you're not even in the fight at all because your sword's in the scabbard and the other guy's already out and drawing on you. What do you do? But this is not a sentiment that occurs in most other manuscripts, most other fact books of the German tradition. The notion being, if the guy drew on you, he's very much in the vor, you're very much in the knock, you've got to do something about that. So to put a statement like that in your manuscript makes me step back and at least wonder if one or more of the people in the transmission chain, from the guy teaching this to the guy who put it down for the Glasgow manuscript, was kind of aware of German Lichtenauer thinking and technology, but wasn't an adept in the art, wasn't truly conversant. I think that's at least a possibility. Now, it doesn't mean that all this other stuff is made up because it works really, really well. And much of it is shaped in such a way that you can clearly see its connection to Lichtenauer's tactical thought. But there are these little pieces in there that make you stop and go, how does an adherent of Lichtenauer say that? What? So that, that becomes a very interesting question, really, and one that scholarship currently, I don't think, has an adequate answer for. Well, 
that that I guess that brings up the question of you know what was the the purpose of this fetch book? Is, is this to train for dueling for self defense? Is this a, a common soldier's manual or, or someone that might be on a gate gate guard duty or something? So, in no particular order, sport fencing isn't really a thing circa 1510 anywhere in Europe. I'm sure some people played at it, but the notion of fence, when we say fencing, we definitely think of it as a sport. Um, There might have been bouting and friendly duels to First Blood or First Menace, but recreational sport fencing wasn't a thing. So we can kind of put the fencing question over there on one side. Given that even with the Gutenberg Revolution in the Germanys, books were still not penny books by any stretch of the imagination, the odds that this was for a even you know a town watch is pretty low just from the way stuff is put together i tend to think that this was a fencing instructor a fencing master a fighting teacher who was putting together his own loose leaf notebook if you like his own compendium of, okay, this is sound advice, this master is sound advice, these things are sound advice, and this is sound advice that I have obtained from whatever source or sources on the messer. It is definitely set forth as a, this is how you fight with X. But it is also clearly a compendium because some of the sections on, for example, from the Nuremberg book or some of the sections from the Rengek are pretty much straight riffs. So those are easy to look at and say, oh, this guy is transcribing a manuscript that he was given of the Nuremberger. Possibly it was on loan to him and he transcribed it so that he'd have it and then the, the other copy went back to the owner. Same with the Ring Act. Oh, Ring Act has the pictures. I'm going to get somebody to draw those for me or I'm going to draw them myself. But then that question then remains. Was the Messer section somebody's short guide? Was this a distillation of things he had seen? You, you just can't tell. There's no distinctive singular voice that comes through in the Glasgow manuscript to, to allow you to say that this is the author and this is the author quoting somebody. So someone who is wanting to train Messer, when would you suggest them uh, coming to this fetch book? Do you think do you think they could come to it right away as their first fetch book? Or should they uh, uh, dabble into a, a deeper codex first and then come to these techniques? 
I, I, my personal take is that I would almost prefer to see somebody who wants to start playing with Messer have some foundational longsword first so that the foundational principles of the Fechtkunst, of the KDF, Lichtenauer's tradition, are clearly laid out so you can start thinking like Lichtenauer wants you to think in a fight. Because, again, that structure is very, very different. And even though I have said that the Glasgow Treatise is a little different because it says stop the person first, then control the blade, then hit, the hits are decisive. There's, there's no fuddling around here. It's like once you have procured your safety, you mafic your man. You have boom. Everything after stopping the weapon and controlling the weapon and or man is quick, efficient, and, is, and there's not a lot of fancification going on here. So in its inmost core taste, it very much has that immediacy of Lichtenauer. Get to the fight, stop the fight, get out. In the earlier traditions, you throw your shot, you start controlling the fight from the outer ring, from the Zufecten to the fight, and if you hit that man in that first shot from the Zufecten, and he's dead, game over, it's good. Otherwise, you get into short range, into the Krieg, don't linger out there in the middle where he can beat up on you, throw the shot, control the fight. If he's reacting and you can take him from still from the outer zone, from this effect, and great. If he starts to move towards you, crash. Come to the middle. And then once you've procured what feels like it should have been a decisive strike, get out. Don't linger any longer than is necessary. Zufecten Krieg Abzug. That's a very decisive style of fighting. It's described in terms very, very different than, you know, you set this guard here, and then you move the blade here, and then you control this blade here, and then you hit that guy. Very different flavor than Italian. And all the Messer work, even if it shifts how you get into the fight, reflecting the faster movement of a one-handed sword, is still in that same Lichtenauer committed, combative, throw it, okay, great. Don't even have to think about it. If he threw it at you, once you've taken, in the earliest terminology, you throw a shot at me, I'm in the knock. I stop that shot, now I'm in the indus. The moment I start controlling your blade by how I move the blade and or my offhand as well, now I'm in the vor, and I'm in the vor all the way home, and I finish it. And then get out, you know, no tourist eye view. What, uh, what's your, like, personally, how did you come to this fetch book? How, you know, was it late in your training? Was it early? It, what? it was very late. 
But, <laughs> I mean, in a very real way, all my German was late, right? I've been doing this since... I've been doing some sort of sword work since the late 1970s. Classical fencing, but even that was informed by earlier traditional fencing because both my father and then my first formal uh, fencing master, Dr. William O'Brien, had classical saber under their belts and their approach to the art was deeply drenched in it. This is far enough back in a way where we didn't have electric saber, which is an abomination unto Nugget as far as I'm concerned. Um, so of the three weapons, even at the Olympic level, this is the one where your strike still had to be decisive as much as anything else because you were still being judged. You just didn't have a buzzer to go off. Messer really only starts to roll out what? Circa 2005, 2007? I mean, certainly um, Christian Tobler publishes the Glasgow Fect book um, redaction in 2010. I had had an extensive period of time with classical fencing, classical saber, then helping to reconstruct rapier and exploring Italianate rapier and deciding that I wanted to try something with a totally different feel, becoming interested in the fact Cohen studying longsword and studying longsword for a good few years before I stopped to look at the Messer, which in no way brings me around full circle to Saber again, kinda, sorta, somewhat. <laughs> did, did, you, did you study and digest this on your own, or were you still training with other people over you? I do on occasion, very rarely, still get a chance to take classes with um, Christian Tobler or to go to an event like WMAW and take classes or get coaching there. Uh, I jump on those opportunities as much as I can because I am now, I think, fairly accomplished at reading and reviewing and redacting but there's no substitute for somebody from the outside looking in who's not attached to, oh, I'm doing it, I must be right because I'm doing it. Guy on the outside or the gal on the other side is not attached to that. They say, no, nah, that's, that's not really how it should, that's not how it should look. There's, there's no substitute for that external eye of your friends and fellow um, senior students. Did anything in your fencing game change after studying this fetch book? With that, I, 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 I have to stop and think, because the problem is that as I started to really have fun with it, when I had an opportunity to fence using cutting weapons that game changed somewhat because it became, if anything, a little more immediate, a little more straightforward. But my cutting game was always based on traditional saber anyway. 
So there was less flourish in there. I think the one thing I would say is I'm probably less likely to use a Moulinet than I used to be. Well, I know because I, I, I went through this with you and the, the footwork was different than I was used to. And it was very, um, I believe the, the guards called the bow or the fiddle bow. Mm-hmm. That, uh, it seemed very dominant in the system. And um, we, we were actually in the Meyer classes training to get away from that break window guard. Because if, if your hands go high, they attack low. And so, but I'm sure if you train it enough, you'll, you use it at the opportune time. Uh, that's why I was asking. Okay. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Again, the Glasgow manuscript sits at the hinge of the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries in some key respects. In the Messer, it's pretty clear to me that that's fairly late compared to some of the other stuff. The use of a stop the weapon, control the weapon, then hit the man is much close to what becomes then, you know, dominant in Meyer's schema, right? So much so that a Meyer person probably snores, provoke Okay? <laughs> yes. But if you stop and look at the work, none of these 11 techniques has you hanging out in that high parry guard, bogan, or fiddle bow. That's not a guard. In the Glasgow Messer tradition, that is, in fact, a legger. Get to there and then do this. You start always down in a lower guard, typically something that would be like an arbor or vexel. You don't have your hand hanging out in bogan. For precisely the same reason you adduce. If I hang my hand out in what you might think of as a first parry, if you know contemporary saber, you know, if I'm hanging out in one, my wrist is going to get cut to crap. Sure, absolutely. So what? you don't do that. What you do is if the guy cuts at your head, then you slam out into parry one, you slam into bogan, into bow, what the Glasgow manuscript calls a simple parry, but you don't stay there. You step out of the way, pushing the blade out of the way one side or another. Again, so you've stopped the blade. You're controlling it by rolling it off your sword to this angle you want while your body is stepping out of the way. And then that blade is way to heck away from you and you're free to hit the open target. I- Stop control it i got one more question and i might just be showing my ignorance for modern sport fencing here i know the term glasgow cuts is is a term they use when you're just wildly wildly hitting the other person's blade and not attacking them 
how'd that come about? And does that have anything to do with this fetch book? Um, I will tell you that this is the first time I've ever heard Glasgow Cuts. Okay. So, whether this evolved because of somebody teasing people in Glasgow or what it was, but it was not a common usage in contemporary Olympic fencing or in classical fencing in the schools that I was taught in in the early 1980s. And I never heard it afterwards when I was still occasionally sliding back and dabbling in contemporary fencing. And now I am probably going to have to go and do some deep research diving because now I'm fascinated. But since the... I will say this. If a person looked at this manuscript and said, hitting the blade instead of your man is a Glasgow cut, they were not well exposed to what the Glasgow Fet book actually is teaching in the Messer section. And again, remember, in the other sections, basically, you're getting told about Nuremberger. You're getting told about Leidenzner. You're getting told about Lichtenauer as glossed by Ringek. And there sure isn't a lot of hit the blade and not the man in any of those. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a, a derogatory term. Like you don't, it, it would be something you would say to make fun of someone fencing poorly. Um, well, I, I'm perfectly willing to believe that in context, <laughs> but I'm just, now I am fascinated and I want to do a deep dive into etymology and figure out where that was derived from. It, I think it relatively less likely to have come from somebody making an assumption having read the Glasgow Manuscript, because the Glasgow Manuscript really wasn't that well appreciated until people in Christian Tobler's lineage had access to it when he translated and then made it available to the general public circa 2010. Um, people who did deep dives into manuscripts knew about it. But for the most part, if you were going to talk about uh, Doberinger, talk about Doberinger. If you're going to talk about Ringet, talk about Ringet. The fact that you might have sourced your notes from what Dobrik had to say as quoted in the Glasgow manuscript, well, that would just be the place where you found the core material, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't really think about that until, and again, I, I am not the be-all and end-all of the history of the Western martial arts, right? Mm-hmm. But I can't say that I ever was aware that the Glasgow manuscript was a thing until circa 2011-2012. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up by uh, pointing people where they can uh, get a copy of this. Okay, so I don't have the URL memorized, but if you go to the website Freelance Academy Press and search Glasgow, it'll pop right up. I'll uh, I'll do my best to remember to throw it in the show notes for the episode. Yeah, it's um, 
I, I have to. I mean, anybody listening by now is perhaps aware that I am a student of Christian Tobler. So you can take this next statement with a grain of salt if you need to. But I have to tell you, uh, PDF with some teaching notes and a video recording in MP4 format, which illustrates all these techniques and unpacks them and describes you know, precision points. Here's how you should do this and here are places where you can do it really well and, and quality points. That entire package is $10 and it's a direct digital download. That's pretty good value for dollar where I'm sitting. Yeah, and, and it's it's something you can go over in a weekend, but study for years and years and years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I thank you, Dr. Bill, for coming on again. I'm sure we'll have you on some more in the future. And uh, everyone listening, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for having me. This episode of Swords and Stereo was produced by Final Plank Media Productions. Theme song for Swords and Stereo is Thunderer by Professor Agma. Check him out too. To find out more about Bold City Longsword, visit their website at jacksonvillehema.com. To find more Final Plank Media produced podcasts, visit finalplank.com. Or visit us at Final Plank on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.